Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa, People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we'll be hearing about key conversations, dismantling racism against Black, Indigenous, and people of color across the substance use continuum. Our subject matter experts on this topic are Drs. Holly Hagel and Marlene Martin, moderated by Dr. Miriam Komaromi. Dr. Hagel is an assistant research professor at the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. She is the co-director of the National Addiction Technology Transfer Center Networking Coordinating Office and the principal investigator with the Prevention Technology Transfer Center. In addition, she is the UMKCPI and co-director on behalf of the ATTC Network for the Opioid State Targeted Response Technical Assistance Grant. Dr. Hagel has been actively working with medical and behavioral health providers for more than 20 years on the integration of behavioral health interventions, including educational programming on intercultural sensitivity. Marlene Martin is an assistant clinical professor at UCSF and a hospitalist at San Francisco General Hospital. She has driven to improve care for populations in the safety net. Marlene was born and raised in Los Angeles and is a first-generation college graduate. She attended college and medical school at Stanford prior to completing internal medicine residency at UCSF. Her bilingual and bicultural Mexican immigrant background influenced her to serve socially oppressed populations. Marlene is board certified in addiction medicine and founded and directs the Addiction Care Team, a novel interprofessional consult service that delivers compassionate, evidence-based care for hospitalized people with unhealthy substance use. She is interested in alcohol use disorders among Latinx populations, as well as eliminating the inequities faced by persons with substance use disorders. Dr. Miriam Komaromi is an addiction medicine physician who is the medical director of the Graykin Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, where her work focuses on all aspects of substance use disorders and the intersection between addiction and health equity. In the past, she led the development of the ECHO model for education of clinical teams about how to treat substance use disorders in primary care. She currently leads a federally funded program studying the best way to treat co-occurring addiction and mental health disorders in primary settings. I'm Dr. Miriam Kamarani from the Grand Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. And I have the tremendous pleasure today of getting to talk with two leaders from Amersa, Dr. Holly Hagel and Dr. Marlene Martin. And today we're going to be discussing um, a paper that they recently published called Dismantling Racism Against Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Across the Substance Use Continuum. Um, I was particularly intrigued um, to get to read this paper, uh, thinking about the leadership role that Amersa is taking in this area. And I wanted to ask, can you tell us a little bit about why did Amersa, as an addiction-focused professional organization, feel that it was important to take on the issue of racism? Thank you so much. Um, Amersa has a very long history of being an advocacy organization as well as a membership organization. Um, we have had several uh, position statements published on 
other issues in the addiction and, and healthcare realm around health privacy, the opioid epidemic, and in particular the epidemic and the settlement funds and, and um, those issues surrounding that, uh, advocacy for pregnant women, just to list some others. So it did seem like a natural fit for the organization this past May when the United States was really and, and currently uh, very um, actively engaged in a dialogue on racism and its role in our society and its continuous, continuous role. So um, because we had reached this threshold moment, I think more of us felt empowered to speak from the platforms we had. I personally, um, this is my second board appointment, and so I'm feeling, I guess, in my career a little more um, centered that I asked the board if they would like to make a statement. And they did all agree that we should have a solidarity statement. And um, that really started the process. Uh, we didn't want to leave it there. And so that led us to the paper. Um, and we you know, are excited to share with you some other efforts that we are going to continue to address this very important issue. Fantastic. Arlene, anything you'd like to add? I was really excited when um, when Holly brought this up. Um, we know that we can't ignore racism because we have seen how it kills and harms no matter what field that we're in. And we see so much evidence of that in the field of addiction. And being silent is unacceptable and also harmful. We in addiction see how it has led to increased overdose deaths among Black, Indigenous, and Latinx individuals and other non-white individuals, how it affects access to treatment, who ends up being criminalized for their substance use, and how this leads to cycles of inequity. So I'm really proud of MRSA for being able to not only put words on paper, but to also um, come up with a plan um, over how we're going to address this in the next few years. Fantastic. I was uh, really struck by the fact that this paper was authored by the entire board of directors uh, under your leadership, Holly. And I'm just wondering if you can describe any challenges or areas of controversy that arose when you were trying to get consensus across your board on these really challenging issues. So it's interesting. Um, I'll first say that I believe this has been a trajectory. I've been a MRSA member for a decade now, so I've been here. And um, so the leadership of the past presidents have been diversifying um, MRSAs uh, from a professional standpoint, like increasing the diversity and presence of um, it's an interprofessional organization but also diversity from a race and ethnic um, standpoint. And so I have to say the leaders and past presidents have enabled us to have, feel that we have that voice. Um, so that's the first platform I would say. I will say though, when I did bring up the solidarity statement, you know, the whole country was very emotional. Obviously we still are, we've been through a lot with COVID and now reckoning with race and its role in our society. There was a little hesitancy at first. It wasn't a yes right out of the gate. I will be honest. And 
a few voices said, well, maybe we should wait to see how things play out, in particular with Mr. Floyd and the circumstances around that. And there were other voices that said, no, we all saw that. We're not going to wait. Marlene articulated very well that we all know in eviction is very stark how racial inequities that they continue and are persistent in our systems have held back people, um, black, indigenous, and people of color, as well as people, Caucasian people, so a low socioeconomic you know, status. Um, so we, other voices said, no, we have enough information to say something about this and we want to. So that's, that was one of the foundations of this. But as soon as the voices all had a chance to speak, then we were unanimous and we were clear. We had a consensus mission. Everyone was very proud of the initial solidarity statement. And now the subsequent paper was literally worked on by every member of the board. I have to track changes to prove it. <laughs> That's great. I would also add that um, before the paper, um, in my role as the diversity committee chair, which is a fairly new role in the last couple of years for Amersa, um, even though the diversity chair is on the board, the the, the chair pre pre some of this didn't have voting power. And when I took on this role, it's not something I necessarily knew, but we quickly remedied that. Um, I, I did. That is something that I asked for. I'm really excited that um, the um, rest of the board of directors was supportive was supportive of this change. I think that's really important to have voice in the um, in the in the diversity chair um, because then it also means that when now that we have our diversity committee, we're going to be able to to carry forward some of this work. And then I think Holly was so so patient with us during the writing process. I don't know if she made that clear, but. We are. We all have so many thoughts, and um, and it took a while to get there. I I remember Holly on one of our calls really saying, you know, we just have to we have to get this done. It's been a couple of, of months, and um, getting consensus around the action plan. I think that's where we we all struggle um, with how much accountability um, to create in the in the in the action plan. And I, I think we reached a really nice compromise with the table that we're going to talk a little bit more about. Ter terrific. It sounds like an amazing process. You know, it's kind of a cliche to talk about how hard it is to write something by a committee, but, but you all managed to figure out how to do it. Um, are there any issues or approaches that either of you was really advocating for that didn't make the final cut? I, I will mention one. And we, it's in the paper just as a, reflection of the context of our history and the drug policies and legals of legal consequences of youth. Um, but we did talk about making a statement on reparations, um, especially in light of the, diff the stock differences between how our country has dealt with the previous in the 80s and 90s, you know, crack cocaine, uh, epidemic and the opioid epidemic. And there's plenty of literature out there that uh, cities and states have been talking about it to one degree or, or another, but we mentioned it in the context of 
that section. And that was appropriate because we didn't feel like our role really was to how would we ever address that? We wanted to make this action oriented. As Marlene said, we're going to share with you our action steps. This is the beginning of the journey for MRSA. Um, not, you know, was not the final statement on racism and diversifying um, the addiction profession or the or addiction services. So just having that in mind, we decided to cut that piece of it. But that, that is one area that we did discuss that we left um, Just discussing it in the context of history. Great. How about you, Marlene? Any, any beloved topics that you can make the cut? As someone who does quality improvement work, I really wanted a tighter timeline for action and accountability in terms of numbers and percentages and things like that. But then taking a step back, we also realized that we sometimes in some of the things that we wanted to improve, we actually didn't have a, we didn't have all the data that we needed. So we decided that establishing that data, for example, in um, the racial and ethnic composition of um, MRSA membership, and so we decided we would focus on getting the data. And then once we have the data, making that data transparent and available to our whole organization. And then from there, we can make on actually making improvement steps. Yeah, I was very impressed by that transparency that, that uh, runs through the entire document to say we're serious about this and we're willing to make it a public process as part of being held accountable. Uh, I, I really thought that was terrific. So now that you have this wonderful plan laid out, how is it going in the early phases of implementing it? Is it turning out the way you anticipated? Well, I will just leverage what Marlene just mentioned about data. I feel like, and I've heard this in other organizations that I'm a part of, that since this whole year has passed and people are really being held to an accountability standards that maybe in previous um, advocacy moments, people have not held people to a level of accountability. But we all track this information quite poorly, not just to MRSA. MRSA did, uh, does as well. We want to improve how we track our own information. But also we know our data sets, our large national data sets are not adequate, especially for minority populations. Um, and we know other organizations have struggled with really how to under address this if we don't understand ourselves our own organizations make up. So um, that to me, I feel like is our homework. So this thing led to, well, if we're going to do this and be accountable, then we have to do it on our website. That's our most visible portal of information to the public. So then as a result of this, we have to be on the website development committee. <laughs> then we have to be on another committee to move this through. So, you know, you have to have a passion for wanting to make it real. And I think we're at the very early stages. I hope we can move faster. And I'll turn it to Marlene for that. She is leading us. I agree with Holly. We are really just starting our journey in this, and it is hard work. Um, it's you know this process now of putting pen to paper, even when we've identified where we want to be, and we set some lofty goals that I that I'm really really proud of. But it's going to take a lot of work, um, not just with the diversity committee, but also with the board of directors and future membership. You already heard from Holly how, you know, making the data transparent means we have to like publicize it. And then it's, it's, cre it's created layers of, um, 
of um, different um, efforts that we have to get involved in. What has been lovely is to see the interest in the diversity committee from our membership. We're having our um, first meeting very soon. So I'm so excited um, to, to, to have that. Our agenda is ready. Um, and then I think just thinking about um, um, diversity broadly, right, um, in, in terms of our committee, you know, we want to include people who have different interests and across geographical regions, different professions and gender and sexual identity. But then to me, it's really important given this paper and, and given what is happening in our country and how people, um, how uh, Black, Indigenous, uh, Latinx populations are affected by substance use, that there's racial and ethnic diversity. And then as someone who identifies as Latina um, and who often also gets tapped and asked to volunteer for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, I also worry about how, when I approach people, how that might feel for them, right? And, uh, and wanting to include more and more um, individuals of, of, of color in, in the diversity committee, but also thinking what other efforts are, are they being asked to do and how do we ensure that the diversity committee and the people who are a part of it are also supported by the board of directors and by the organization broadly because it can't, um, I think what we realize is given the, the lofty goals that we, we, uh, that we have set, um, that it's, it's, you know, it can't just run as one of our um, interest groups. This, um, this needs a lot of support from, from, from all of us. And so I think that we're, fig we're figuring this out as we go and it's, it's tough conversation sometimes. And it's asking for help and it's taking a step back and, and um, getting the group back together and, and moving forward then. That's great, thank you. Yeah, you're kind of trying to change the water we swim in, not, not, uh, not redecorate the walls. It's, uh, it's quite challenging. Um, you know, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on um, the ways that racial disparities in the criminal justice system relate to disparities in the treatment and consequences of substance use disorders. It seems like these are so intricately tied in so many different ways. And you touch on it a little bit in your paper. I wonder if you, um, if you could comment on that. Yes, absolutely. In fact, if, you know, we'll link to the paper, I'm sure, in the comments below the podcast. And you may or may not read every word of it. But if you were just going to skim it, I urge people to look at the section on um, creating, enforcing, and propagating drug laws, the racist war on drugs, for a really keen awareness of how this has been systematic and intentional from policy and legal perspective within our country. Um, all sections will you know, really get to the root of that question, and I, I do hope people read it. But if you were just going to look, I would really want you to focus in on especially in the 1970s, the legislation and the, you know, the war on drugs that was launched by our president Richard Nixon and his administration and how we are living with that legacy to today. In fact, we saw that legacy in Mr. The, the, the trial for the murder of Mr. Floyd, if you think about it, because his history involvement with opioids was the defense 
uh, right? That was the, the crux of their case. Um, and really, it was ancillary, right? Um, so we can see how it plays out in these larger narratives. But we have a long history. It's, it's been systematic, and, and that section outlines it. I want to highlight in the face of a lot of anti-Asian uh, racism that no um, group in our country of the United States has been immune to these uh, laws and policies that have before, um, you know, discriminated and marginalized uh, communities. And so the first actual anti-drug law in the United States happened in the city of San Francisco with the opioid debt ordinance of 1875. And this was adopted because of the anti-Chinese immigration settlement that was present, and it culminated in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And I, I wanted to make sure that I emphasize that. It's happened to almost every minority community in the United States systematically, intentionally. And these are the things we are trying to dismantle. Because these effects exclude these communities for generations from job markets, voting, you know, gen creating generational wealth or even creating, you know, middle-class security in our country that prides itself on democracy and security. So this creation and enforcement and propagation of these laws and policies, you know, only reinforces a false racial hierarchy and that contributes to health disparities and the lost opportunities for black indigenous and Latinx communities and other communities that are um, have been marginalized. So I, I, you know, I know it's kind of a heavy answer to that. <laughs> I'll stop there. But um, I was very proud that uh, Dr. Paula Lum, our president, helped us really craft this paper very intentionally, and especially around the history, because we cannot extract that from what we are currently going through today. Marlene, would you like to comment further? Holly summed that up very beautifully. Yes, she did. All right. Um, turning to some of the strategies that you proposed in your paper, um, you described a plan to tackle racism in part by diversifying Immersa's membership. And that makes a lot of sense, but it also sounds pretty challenging. Um, we know that there are challenges in racial and ethnic diversity all the way along the pipeline to um, healthcare professions. And uh, so um, it, it's challenging to try to create a truly diverse professional society. What are some practical steps that you intend to take in order to do this? And how will you know when you've achieved success with this goal? I'll just comment that um, really thanks to Marlene's leadership, keeping us accountable and her quality improvement, uh, love for quality improvement endeavors, um, made us take the recommendations and make them actionable steps, number one. Um, and there, they are quite lofty, but I think we're all very committed. The passion will help us see us through. We've already commented that we don't understand our data to begin with, but that was a little disappointing. It was actually really kind of sad. We were like, 
we thought we had data. We were like, oh, wait a second, that's conference data. That's different than membership data. So we had to reconcile that. And then truly we had just said, you know what, we really can't comment. We have to be fixed. We need more information. So that's one thing, understanding where we start from. But I do think we're very aware that the pipeline going all the way back, I would say, to grade school and to high school to promote the, you know, the profession across uh, communities. Um, is where we have to land. Now, how we get there, we have, we have some ideas, and I'm sure we're going to have to change them. I'll, I'll turn it over to Marlene, but we do plan on being very active with um, historically Black colleges, with tribal colleges, um, and we all have connections that way, and I think we're just going to track and see how it goes. I'll turn it over to Marlene for someone specific. I'm really excited about diversifying immersive membership because I think that this has the potential to make huge impact long term. And I also think that by engaging, educating, mentoring, and leadership by, by the different ways that we um, that we um, set our goals up. Um, that are ingrained in our mission statement. I think that 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 is how um, we are going to accomplish this. And it's true, we cannot fix the pipeline overnight. But there are so many groups that are working on these efforts already. And one thing that I know that Immersa and Immersa membership is good at is the relationship building, the the build bridging. And so I. In, in this sense, I call on current Immersa members and any future members who join that we want you, um, whoever you are in the different regions that you live in, in your various professions, to start mentoring students and trainees and that the people that you already work with. And if they show an interest in, a, in, in, in addiction um, and you share your joy for this work with them, to, to bring them on board. Um, and we're going to have pathways in terms of uh, scholarships and other support systems so that they can, you know, if they haven't come to a meeting before, they can get a little taste of Immersa um, through um, some, of, some of these programs that we're going to support. And I think that that um, if you focus too on, um, and, and on, on specifically on um, individuals of, of, of color who are not um, as represented right now, um, then we then we can change the membership long term. And and then again, going back to, to our data and and tracking our efforts and seeing how that change is being reflected in the numbers in the long term. Terrific. Thank you. Those are great answers. Really helpful. Um, when you think about the work that you've been doing and you, you imagine it kind of playing out and being fully implemented, what do you see as the potential long-term impact of this work of immersives on the field of addiction? And how about on the care of patients who have substance use disorders? For me in particular, I wanted to emphasize this dovetails on um, well, and just said that there are many organizations that are working on the pipeline and, and networking is important, right? That first step 
getting somebody to come to an event, a conference, mentoring them, speaking to them, making them feel welcome when they're present at our event. We are hoping to diversify through that, those means. But I do think having been in the field 20 years now and immersed in the mechanical, that this in particular, because it's, a, it's not just a clinical, it's an interprofessional organization of academics, educators, clinicians. And because we're interprofessional, we actually have a very good chance at affecting generations. So each one of the MRSA board members teaches, you know, each one of I think that's very fairly true for all of our membership as well. That we have, we have mentees, we have students, and that passion to facilitate um, their experiences in the field of substance use disorders. But I also think we have the passion of um, the mission that we want to provide safe, equitable care for all substance users. Um, those who have a substance use disorder, those who choose to use substances. And so that mission, you know, um, I had a mentor myself who says, no mission, no margin, right? For a nonprofit, you have to have that mission to carry you through. And so I do believe that about immersion. Okay, Marlene, how about you? I think that with some of this investment that we're doing now and commitment to um, to be an anti-racist organization and to um, diversify our field, um, but I think new ideas, um, reinvention in our organization is going to happen. I think our priorities uh, um, we, we will evaluate them and, and reprioritize. And then just a, a broader representation of not just different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds, but diversity in all senses. And maybe that means that we um, will, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not just an organization in the United States, we're an organization that has Canadian members and members in Europe and and I think we have a lot to learn from what's happening in Canada and what's happening in Europe in, in the field of addiction. And what Holly said is, is so true. I think one of the things that is so unique to Immersive and one of the reasons I love it is that it's this interprofessional nature. And I learned so much as someone who's a clinician, right? I learned so much from the people who are doing research. And I, I focus on hospital medicine and hospital-based addiction care. And some of my Immersa, uh, co-Immersa members who are leading the, the, the research in, in the field of hospital addictions there are the people that I turn to, right? And then you have people who are doing research and, and turning research into policy at the national level, right? And then people who uh, are there and uh, also mentoring. It's, it's all these different people coming together. And I think that's, that's what gives us the capacity to um, have impact uh, and um, and to be able to to carry out the work that we set forth in in, in this paper, and to just also and to have this translate to just better care for individuals with substance use disorders. That's great. It sounds like immersive diversity in uh, professional roles related to substance use is really a huge strength for thinking about how the work that you're doing is going to percolate um, throughout the whole field over time. 
That's exciting. I wonder if either of you has um, thoughts that have come up for you as we've been talking that you want to share that I haven't asked about, sort of um, topics that you really want to point out related to the work you've been doing or your thoughts about it. I'd like to invite everyone who's listening to this and who is going to be mentoring others to, to a call to action. And it's, you know, something that I brought up earlier, but just to, to come to our, to a conference and get sold on what it feels like to be part of the Aversa community. It's this really tight knit community. Dr. Lum was a person who brought me to the first one. Uh, she just sent me the link and told me to, submit an abstract and to apply for a travel award. And now I have this wonderful community of people in the field of addiction who are my main mentors at Immersa. And um, I also have this, there's a group of awesome women that I met there too, who we we have these like uh, every other month um, get togethers, even over Zoom and we're all across the country. And it's just so inspiring to, to, to learn from them and to feel supported by them. And so Immersa feels like home um, and much of that magic that um, that creates this is is all these um, different individuals from professions coming together. You can just look at our board of directors um, to see that. And for me, it's the first time I've been on a on a board, um, and I, I I I'm not sure that there's other um, or organizations in in um, addiction who have a, a board membership that is um, so diverse in terms of the professions that we're, that we're bringing together. Wonderful. Well, as we close out, I just wonder if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, uh, take home points that you really want people to, uh, to go home with. I, I want to make two points. Um, one is just, I meant to do this, but Marlene, I slipped my mind, but you just did that. We are an international organization. And through the process of this paper, we were realizing that some of our definitions and constructs were so focused on the U.S. You know, and so we tried to edit that out of our recommendations for sure. But the goal that we can be more representative of our international partners and members in Canada, in Europe, in Africa, and anywhere. So, um, that's one thing I want to emphasize that I feel like will strengthen us too, because we became aware not just of the diversity in the U.S. and our own U.S.-based history legacies that we have to be, but that we want to be global. And so I feel like we didn't do that justice really in this paper. So that is something we want to work on and get better at and learn from and articulate as an organization. And then um, my last thing really was around um, you had mentioned specifically the care uh, for people with substance use disorders. And uh, we commented on how we do feel like this, this will translate into better care um, because we work with people who are clinicians, researchers, policymakers. But um, I want to point out just a little bit. Um, I have a favorite author from graduate school days <laughs> into now my middle life here, my little middle age career here. Um, I've been a lifelong fan of Paulo Freire. So I did put in a couple of Paulo Freire um, comments and theories into the paper that were relevant. And I want to reflect on one here. And he has very famously written about the pedagogy of oppression, but he's also written about the pedagogy of hope. He writes that hope is not enough to achieve liberation. 
liberation requires instilling equitable care that respects differences. And so from this paper and our work with Immersa today and every day, I hope that we can strive to achieve that care for all of us. And we just don't let up. Tremendous. Thank you so much for your inspiring words and wisdom, Dr. Hagel, Dr. Martin. It has been such a pleasure getting to talk with you and learn from you during this hour. Thank you so much. That was Drs. Holly Hagel and Marlene Martin in conversation with Dr. Miriam Komarome on the topic of dismantling racism against Black, Indigenous, and people of color across the substance use continuum. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.